Psalm 772. We're certainly looking forward to using that later in the service this evening. Delighted, of course, to see each and every one with us this evening, and certainly, as Lester's already mentioned, we would do well to uh, thank the Mountain View congregation, Brother French being with us tonight. We sponsor that congregation in that. We financially support them, and so we're delighted to hear the good words of truth and soundness that emanate from, from that part in East Tennessee, and we certainly wish that congregation the very, very best in their continued efforts to be strong and to thrive even in that part of the state. This evening, as you can tell from the title, our interest, our effort, our focus will take us to the 66th and final book in the Bible. And tonight we certainly won't look in detail at the, tw at the 22 chapters of that book, but I think the title perhaps speaks for itself. The book of Revelation has occasioned no small amount of dissension, discussion, controversy, and even abuse. And for that reason, I thought perhaps it'd be worth our while to take just a few moments and at least set before ourselves the reasoning behind some of that difficulty. Why is it that this book, perhaps more so than any other single book in all the Bible, has been such a book that has occasioned these challenges and difficulties? You may well notice on that slide, every section in the Bible is vital, and every section is needful. It's inspired of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 still says that all Scripture is given the inspiration of God. That would include the book of Revelation. And yet, you'll notice on that slide, this book is a book that is indeed a book of encouragement and victory. And how desperately many of us need that kind of message how critically it resonates with our soul's need in the midst of a world so often gone wrong and so often making poor choices. This book, the hope that it sheds, the dramatic and great victory that it shows, you and I need to be benefited and blessed by. You'll see at the bottom of that slide, as I've already mentioned, this book has been the centerpiece of so much challenge and difficulty and, quite frankly, misinterpretation. Quite often, messages from this book are used to teach what it does not teach. We would never wish to do that. We wish to stand strongly and firmly upon the truth which this book does convey. And so, again, we might ask, why is it that this book has occasioned these challenges? To put that idea more thoroughly in its place, I inserted this slide. Could you and I not take just for a moment and see it like this? The New Testament is such a logical and systematic arrangement. Four gospel accounts. They highlight the precious and perfect life of the greatest one that ever lived, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth. But you'll notice every one of those books closes with His death. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John not only detail the, the life, but also in great detail His death. Almost finally, they do at least record His resurrection, and that immediately leads to the next book. The book of Acts is the sole book of New Testament history. It plants in your mind and mine three great truths. Number one, how to benefit personally from the life you just studied. How do you and I appropriate the blessings of the life of Christ to ourselves? 
The book of Acts sets that out in grand fashion, how to become a Christian. Ten places in that book are examples of how folks became Christians. And thus, you and I simply seek to do what they did then. But in addition to that, the book of Acts details the background for many of the other New Testament books. Before we read one book, one element of the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians, we should read Acts 18. When the gospel first came to Corinth, what happened there and how the church began. And speaking of that, the third blessing of the book of Acts, the grandeur attached to the beginning of the church. How did it have its beginning? Well, again, as Acts has now showed us how to benefit personally from the life of Christ, 21 books follow it, Romans through Jude. These books detail day by day and moment by moment how to benefit personally and how to live in an ongoing way the life of a Christian. How to be faithful to Jesus in the church. May I say that leaves but one book. How to benefit from the life of Christ and then how to live the Christian life. All that's left is how to die in Christ. How to leave this place and go home to glory. And that's what the book of Revelation, I suppose better than any other New Testament book, will show us and will tell us. You'll thus notice on that slide the key word in the book of Revelation. The word that is its key is victory. It is the word overcome. I have written that for you on the slide for your consideration. The word occurs 17 times in 22 chapters. And it literally is the word nikeo. It means again to overcome. If you and I will overcome Satan, sin, and self, we can come over to live with God. To overcome. You and I, in fact, every age will critically need the message of overcoming. I would use this moment to interject the following. As you and I reflect on the book of Revelation, there certainly are periods in history wherein the book of Revelation is more strongly and more acutely utilized. In a moment, we'll see some reasons why that's so. But let's journey on to complete that slide. Initially, the book was written to seven churches in Asia. These are told to us in chapters 1, 2, and 3. We have them listed in order on that slide. The church at Ephesus. We know somewhat about them because the book of Ephesians was written to them. Not only that, in Acts chapter 20... We remember that Paul met with the elders of the church in Ephesus. And thus we have at least a bit of an understanding about the nature of that congregation of the Lord's people. But following that, the second of the seven churches, the church at Smyrna. Among other things, we learn in a very brief message, Jesus told them, you're about to be persecuted terribly. But they were admonished, you be faithful and strong. Be faithful till death, he would tell them, and the crowd of life will be yours. The third one's the church at Pergamos. Now, this was a congregation in an exceedingly difficult location. And I don't mean just environmentally. They were at a particular place where the onslaught and the crosshairs from the Roman government were upon them, and they were persecuted enormously. There was a martyr there named Antipas. Can you imagine being put to death simply because you're a Christian? The next one was Thyatira. 
This too was a congregation, and much is said about this church of the Lord. They had their problems. They allowed false teaching and false doctrine to run rampant. And there was a woman there who was likened to Jezebel. How terrible. We next learn about the church at Sardis. This was a church that had a name that was alive, but they were dead. How tragic it is to imagine a group of people who lived or at least portrayed life, and yet the Lord said, you're dead. The sixth church was Philadelphia. That congregation, perhaps it's interesting to note, though they were small, Jesus had nothing negative to say about them. They were doing what they could with what they had, and the Lord highly commended them. And may I say, that should be the goal of every congregation, no matter how small or large they may be. The seventh and last one is Laodicea. We all remember them. They're the church that made the Lord sick. They weren't cold. They weren't hot. They were lukewarm. And yet you and I notice all of these messages to those congregations. And as Jesus sent them, may we remember the remaining chapters in Revelation were for their blessing, their benefit, and their edification. With that said, let's close that slide and say it like this. Given that the book of Revelation is a book of hope and victory and encouragement and triumph, how desperately do you and I need it? It's easy to become negative. It's easy to feel in despair. It's easy to imagine disappointment, for we seemingly see it so often. And yet Revelation holds out for us the grandest of all hopes. Why then might this book be so difficult compared to some others, at least in the mind of some? Let's look at a few reasons. Obstacles to understanding Revelation. The first thing it seems fair to mention is the type of literature which is the book of Revelation. I say type of literature because as you and I read the Bible, isn't it true that there are some books in the Bible which literally tell a narrative story in chronological order? As you read the book of Genesis, I come to read about Noah, but then chronologically later we encounter Abraham, and chronologically later we remember Jacob, and we remember Esau and Joseph and all the others. But it's a narrative, factual record in chronological order. The book of Revelation is not that kind of literature. I would ask you to notice almost immediately the class of literature of which Revelation is a part is called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature. In fact, you might find it interesting. If you're reading through in Greek, the very first word in the first verse, in the first chapter in Revelation, is apocalypse. In fact, that's the meaning, that's the actual title of this book. If you're reading in the King James translation, as Brother Andrew did earlier, the first five words of verse 1 of chapter 1 read, The revelation of Jesus Christ. In Greek, it is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Almost immediately then, we notice this book is apocalyptic. Almost immediately that begs a question, what does that mean? I would ask you to note this. That word literally means an unveiling. It means a revealing. 
It means a disclosing. Something is being revealed. Something is being disclosed. And so it is. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It certainly isn't of men. It is of Christ. And thus, that idea immediately suggests the next. This opening verse in the book has a very critical word at one point in it. I would ask you to notice again as I read it, and I'll pause and emphasize it when I arrive at it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto Him, to show unto His servants things which must shortly come to pass. And He sent and signified it by His angel unto His servant John. There's a word, signified. I would call your attention to what that word means. It literally carries the thrust as follows. To intentionally and forthrightly produce an image. To produce an impression. And it often does it in a very figurative fashion, in the sense that it uses dramatic imagery to carry out that mission. May I again say, Revelation is not a narrative in chronological order. It rather is this apocalyptic language wherein some rather amazing images are used to convey truth. You may immediately wonder, well, are there any other Bible books that operate like this? Yes. And interestingly enough, it's some of the most unfamiliar ones in many cases to us. For instance, if we were to give thought to the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, there is a book, again, of 48 chapters. And often in Ezekiel we encounter, you may recall, a series of lessons, I guess that's been about six years ago now, in which we looked at the the book of Ezekiel. Remember the images, and there are some who've even imagined in Ezekiel that they are able to see spaceships. There are no spaceships in Ezekiel. But it's what Ezekiel saw in vision form. And it conveyed the messages of truth that God wished through him to share with Israel. But not only Ezekiel. The last six chapters of Daniel are that kind of literature. You and I typically think more of the first six chapters of Daniel, where Daniel's in a lion's den, and there's three Hebrew children in a fiery furnace. And those are wonderful records But the last six chapters of Daniel, we read about images and beasts. Well, that's apocalyptic language. To that, might we add the book of Zechariah. A little 14-chapter book near the end of the Old Testament that again often conveys the message of truth in apocalyptic literature. Now, those aren't the only apocalyptic sections of the Bible, but yet how meaningful they are. And the book of Revelation fits right in with them. Let's add to that the following. Just to point out some quick examples in the book of Revelation. Look at some of these. Wherein truth is presented, but it is presented in such a very interesting way with images and impressions. Could we start in chapter 13? John, what you see right in the book... And he sees beasts rise out of the ocean. And one foot is on the ocean and one foot is on the land. And this is supposed to convey a dramatic truth that John, as well as those churches, were to understand. 
that beast conveyed something. It literally stood for something. And so as you and I read it, may we not think about those beasts as something like Aesop's fable or something along that line. It actually meant, it stood for something. Look at another way in which that language appears. In chapter 6, aren't you impressed with the rider of a pale horse? Death is said to ride a pale horse. Now, as you and I think about trying to picture death riding on a horse, in the context that carries an amazing significance and a dramatic meaning. But one more time we get the idea. Truth is presented in this apocalyptic way. Maybe another example would be chapter 20, wherein an unusual pit, a hole, is in essence referenced. It is said to have no bottom. Have you ever seen a pit with no bottom? (laughs) Hard to imagine, isn't it? And yet that idea in chapter 20 is very significant. It carries with it the sense of the greatness of victory seen by who's cast into that pit. No wonder the Christians should look forward to the thought of the enemy being cast into that bottomless pit. Maybe we've said enough about the kind of literature. Let's close that slide. And maybe it'd be fair to say that the Word of God is such that many different kinds of literature are found within the sacred text of the Bible. There's apocalyptic sections like Revelation. There's books of history like Acts. There's books of poetry like Psalms. The idea is God and His Word would challenge us to study it rightly and to divide it well. But what might be another reason? So one thing we've learned, if you and I try to read Revelation like a narrative in chronological order, we're going to be lost from the first verse. It's not that kind of literature. What might be another reason, however, that can pose its challenge? It has to do with history. Specifically, history connected to the Old Testament. I say that for the following reasons. The book of Revelation makes an extensive reference to history. In fact, you may notice, those who have done a count, some have concluded there are over 500 references and allusions in Revelation to the Old Testament. If that number be accurate, consider the extensiveness of it. The book only has 22 chapters. And so if there are 500 Old Testament references in it, think about how many of them on average there must be every chapter. And in so doing, it's quite often those sections in the Old Testament we mentioned earlier, like Ezekiel, like Daniel, like Zechariah. And so, perhaps in many reasons you and I may well stand at fault. If I am not as thoroughly conversant with Ezekiel or with Zechariah, then I might well have more difficulty making the most sense out of some of the things said in Revelation. Clearly, that is a bit of a challenge for each of us, but let's develop it perhaps like this. Many of the references in the book of Revelation to the Old Testament are to the prophetical books. Typically, when it comes to the Old Testament, you and I know a lot about Genesis and Exodus and many other books like Samuel and Kings and Jonah. But sometimes, again, those other books are those which may be less familiar to us. 
Well, may I say, as we come to Revelation, look at just a few of these examples. In chapter number 1, one of the images that are so powerfully laid before the readers and the hearers of this book is, the Son of God is pictured with His feet likened unto burnished brass, as if they had been in a furnace of fire. It would be easy to read past that and not appreciate the significance behind it. But to a person who knows the book of Daniel, immediately what comes to mind is, wasn't it true that Jesus walked in that fiery furnace with the three Hebrew children? Do you remember that they threw three in, but when Nebuchadnezzar looked into it, there was another one, like unto the Son of Man. And so the reader of Revelation could immediately remember Jesus was with them. Though persecuted they were, though beleaguered they were, Jesus was with them and brought them safely throughout the entirety of that matter. To these congregations then in the book of Revelation who themselves were suffering, who themselves were in such dire circumstances, that little innocent reference told them this, the Lord is with you. He'll walk with you in your trial of affliction as well. And He will sustain you and buoy you upward even though, though your enemies may appear powerful and strong. Look at another possibility, another thing that reminds us of Old Testament usage, chapter number 4. As you and I read the opening several verses of that chapter, we see that one was sitting on the throne and a rainbow was over the one sitting on the throne. A rainbow? You and I may well think about the beauty of a rainbow and the tremendous physics and optics that go into it. But that's not the message of Old Testament character. Immediately to those knowledgeable of the book of Genesis, you would remember, would we not, that after Noah came off the ark, God put a rainbow in the cloud. And He put that bow there as a constant reminder, not only of the fact that He'd never again destroy the earth by water, but that He is true to His promise. He has been true to that promise, and He will judge the world in righteousness in that same way one day. All of that contained in the image of a rainbow. Look at the next one, chapter number 7. Now here is a chapter again that's caused a fair amount of trouble when 144,000 are under discussion, and there are religious groups today that will immediately use that reference to 144,000, and they use it wrongly. They interpret it badly. As you look through the listing of that 144,000, 12,000 are said to be from each of 12 tribes of Israel. It's interesting you don't hear that same denominational group emphasize that much. But as you and I return to the Old Testament, it's a rather interesting thing. Some tribes we would expect to be listed are not there, and others that we would not expect to be listed are there. That's very significant. And a proper interpretation of Revelation 7 will make use of that fact. And it's pretty easy to appreciate the overall idea and the truth that is being mentioned. Maybe one final example would be this one. Chapter number 11. We find in the Revelation an unusual reference to two olive trees. Isn't that interesting? Two olive trees... And yet, as those who are knowledgeable of the Old Testament, we immediately race in our mind to Zechariah chapter 4. 
where there two olive trees are presented. And they are significant in that. They point directly to the sustaining force and power behind them. And they point, of course, to the great things that God sustains to uphold His Word. Well, as you and I can see then for these two reasons, if we try to read Revelation without a knowledge and a usage of the Old Testament, we likely will have problems. And we will abuse and at least misinterpret some of the passages. What about a third understanding that will be very helpful to us? I've simply entitled this the background of the book. Those first century individuals who first received the book of Revelation, they were in a very different circumstance than you and I are in now. And not just 2,000 years in time. It's not just that. It has to do with what I have written at the top of this slide. The Roman Empire was an exceedingly strong force against the early church. It was not going to be until the year 325 A.D. when a Roman emperor gave his blessing upon the church. In those years prior to that, they persecuted it enormously. The Roman Empire was known for this. You and I have perhaps read those records of where under the leadership of Nero, one of the Roman Caesars, Christians, just like you and me, they were brought into the garden, doused with fuel, and set on fire to light Nero's garden at night so they could walk and enjoy a, a nice evening. Can you imagine it? Your brothers and sisters in Christ and mine treated like that. And it's not that they'd committed crimes. It's not that they had caused insurrection against the Roman government. They simply would not honor the Caesar. They would not say Caesar is king. They would not say Caesar is Lord. What they would say is Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Caesar wouldn't tolerate that. And they were put to the death. Sometimes, as I mentioned, they were burned at the stake. Sometimes they were beheaded. Sometimes they were brought into the Roman Colosseum. And you perhaps remember the stories where for the entertainment purposes of those who could afford it, they would sit in the amphitheater stands and they would let wild animals be turned in on these Christians and they would watch them as these wild animals would tear them to shreds and kill them. It's in that kind of setting that the book of Revelation was written. It would not have been uncommon to walk along the streets just in an effort to buy the necessities for your family. And a Roman soldier who was standing by would perhaps say, I demand that you say Caesar's Lord. If you did that, fine. He would perhaps allow you to pass onward and would offer you no more trouble. But if you refused... He would perhaps be the very one who would bring you into the Colosseum. He'd be the very one who would lead you to imprisonment where you would stay there for weeks on end and then ultimately be brought into that arena. And all the while you would know for those days leading up to it that you were going to die. It's in that kind of setting that our brothers and sisters in Christ in the first century, that's how they lived. This book spoke to them in a very dramatic way, providing them with initiative and hope.
and providing them with a thought that regardless what happens to you here, Jesus is on your side, and even if you die, you'll go to a better place. That kind of hope is still something that you and I would be blessed to enjoy. About the middle of that slide, there's a lot of references in the New Testament to the kind of persecution that Christians failed. And there's a lot of verses that held out hope for them, but none did it as graphically and none did it as powerfully, I suppose, as the Revelation. In Romans 8 verse 18, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That would have meant a lot to those Roman Christians. To that, could we add this one in Matthew 5 verses 10 through 12? Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. You and I don't thrive as much in the thought of persecution. It makes us very uncomfortable. It made them uncomfortable too, I'm sure. But Jesus told them you'll be blessed if you endure it. It didn't seem as if they tried to avoid it as much. They understood that loyalty to Jesus demanded it. As you and I close that slide, I have mentioned a few quick references in the book of Revelation wherein that background is very helpful. For example, in chapter number 2, the church at Pergamos. I mentioned earlier about Antipas, that faithful martyr. He was put to death simply because he was a Christian. That greatly impacted the church at Pergamos. As you and I could imagine, how would you and I feel if we arrived on, on a Sunday and an announcement was made, our beloved brother X, whatever his name might be, we are very sad to announce that yesterday he was put to death. I believe that would shake each of us up, recognizing that it could be me next, it could be you next. And that's the kind of circumstance beneath which they lived every day. Look at another example. In chapter 13, maybe one of the most abused sections of the whole book, the mark of the beast. From the perspective of the background of the book, that is not that difficult to understand. And yet there are those today still wondering, do I have the mark of the beast? Can I get the mark of the beast? And yet chapter 13 would tell us that that is to be seen, not as that which many today think that it is, what about the reference to Babylon in chapter 17, imperial Rome and a city sitting on seven hills? That was Rome. And Rome's destruction is therein presented and that she will not be the force that overwhelms Jesus Christ and His truth. Let's come to a fourth one. Another reason that really does cause a difficulty in the mind of some is that they have been given the definite impression by somebody that Revelation cannot be understood. You might have even read some of the artifacts of history wherein some of the notable religious leaders of history were under the impression that, despite the best efforts of men, Revelation cannot be understood. I would be quick to say this, if you and I open Revelation and start to read it, 
And if we really believe it cannot be understood, we won't understand it. That mindset will alone be enough to lead one to fail to appreciate much of what's in it. It is an indictment of God to think that He would put a book in the Bible which cannot, even with our best effort, be understood. Again, if that's what He did, then the fault rests with Him. But clearly that's not what He did. Revelation, just like the other 65 books before it, it can be appreciated, and there are truths within it that can be fathomed. I would not say that every element in Revelation is trivial and easy to understand. There are challenging matters in it, but it can be understood. The overall truth is there, and the major matter of benefit for you and for me shines forth splendidly. Notice some of these matters. Several times in the Bible, the book of Revelation, as well as other things, are said to be understandable. Let me invite you to notice verse 3 of chapter 1 of Revelation. And what does this say about the understandability of the book? Revelation 1 verse 3, "...blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein." For the time is at hand. Does that phrase, which keep those things which are written therein, does that indicate that they could understand what's contained in this book? Well, sure it does. If they were able to keep it, that meant they could understand it and apply those teachings to their lives and behave in a way that would be consistent with that truth. Revelation can be understood sufficiently to be blessed by it. And anybody who leaves the impression otherwise are setting themselves up for abusing it and for failing in a very, very powerful way. We've looked at four reasons so far, four potential obstacles to the book of Revelation. Number five will close our list. The fifth one that can well be a potential stumbling block is what I've entitled Principles of Effective Bible Study. It's really a bit interesting, isn't it? We often are those who, following the Restoration tradition, we will take a text of the Bible and we will seek to appreciate its setting. We will ask questions like, who wrote it? When was it written? To whom was it written? What were the circumstances in which it was written? And after appreciating those things, then we will place the text in its context and we will decipher the matters connected to it. It's interesting, though, that we often abandon those same valuable principles when we come to Revelation. We've used them so effectively with the book of 1 Corinthians, and we use them so effectively with the book of Matthew, and then we abandon them when we come to Revelation. That isn't wise. If we would use those things, we could use the teachings of history, the truth of the background of this book, the matters connected to John and where he was when he wrote it, and they could be a real blessing to aid us as we ponder and utilize the teachings of the book of Revelation. For that reason, may I point out chapter number 1 and call your attention to verse number 11. 
This verse truly speaks volumes in light of this principle. Saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou seest, write in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Please envision this with me. John, what you see. He did not say, John, what you hear, write in a book. It's what you see. The book of Revelation is to be imagined in the sense that as you read it, picture in your mind what is being described because as you see it in your mind's eye, that's what John saw. And he wrote down what he saw. So when we read what he wrote down, we can see what he saw. And the truth is thus contained in that apocalyptic presentation. When he saw beasts rise out of the sea, or when he saw the two olive trees, or when he saw the angel measure the length and breadth of Jerusalem. Picture an angel making those measurements, and the idea would be beneficial to us as we appreciate when we read that, we are able to see what John saw. And by the way, that means we would do well to attempt to put ourselves in that kind of position because notice that verse went on to say this, Send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. When those first century Christians received the scroll that was Revelation, and some gentlemen stood up and read it, perhaps on the Lord's day, when they heard what was read, they could see it in their mind's eye, they could thus appreciate the message that Jesus through John was sending May I suggest we then would do well to put ourselves in John's place so that we can see what he saw. But we need to put ourselves in the places of those recipient churches. How did they hear and how did they see that message? And if we will do that, it will aid us as we come to the book of Revelation, to the Apocalypse, that is the 66th and last book of the Bible. Let's close that slide like this. Revelation 14, 13 is a beautiful verse. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works to follow them. John was writing to some individuals for whom death was a very real possibility. And yet they were comforted that those who die in the Lord, in fact, are blessed. But may I say, what an impetus. You can't die in the Lord if you don't live in the Lord. Are you and I living in the Lord tonight? Are we faithful to Him? I hope that this overview, if you please, these basic considerations of troubling points potentially in our appreciation of Revelation, I hope they'll be helpful to us. I have again summarized them there, but Revelation is understandable. And as far as those things that we've highlighted... First, it is apocalyptic literature. It often resorts to references to the Old Testament, prophets. It, of course, is setting in a background of persecution. Furthermore, it is highlighted, at least in the mind of some, that it can't be understood, but that's, that's wrong. And finally, the powerful reality touching the fact of that failure that can be ours when we don't use those Bible study techniques that have been so often beneficial. 
tonight if there's anyone for whom things aren't well with your soul tonight. That song that we sometimes sing, It is well with my soul. You and I should be able to sing that with assurance, with confidence, with a degree of resting character. But if that's not the case for you tonight, it isn't because the Lord hasn't done His part. He went to the cross and shed His blood, and He bought the church, and you and I can be a faithful part of it. Tonight, if you have become a Christian at some former day, but you aren't faithful, come back to your first love. That church in Ephesus in Revelation 2 was told that. We would be honored to pray for you, to encourage you, and if we could do that, we would certainly love to do it now. All together we stand and while we sing.